Hey, good morning. Welcome to Biltmore Church Online. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Hope you've had a great week. Normally, in normal times, we are uh, one church in six locations. Now we're one church in thousands of locations. So wherever you're viewing from, thank you for uh, participating. Uh, let us know how we can pray for you. Uh, if you get excited about a point, I mean, give us an emoji. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you are tuning in, we've had people everywhere from uh, Iraq to Los Angeles to uh, Silva to Wisconsin. And so thank you very much for uh, tuning in. All right, uh, before we uh, jump into the text, uh, what I want to do is for the local folks, let me give you a couple of things real quick. Uh, first one would be this, is uh, make sure if you're part of Biltmore Church locally, or even if you're not, actually you can participate in some of this, is that we are in the middle of what is called Biltmore Church uh, Love Schools. All right, Biltmore Church Love Schools. The whole series is called The Gospel Changes Everything. When it comes to serving people, we got to remember, you know, God served us in the gospel and we want to serve other people. And so one of the expressions of that is Biltmore Church Love Schools. Easiest way for you to know all about the different things is to go to BiltmoreChurch.com uh, schools and what you will do is you'll see a plethora of ways that you can participate, all right? Uh, we've had a great start. Hundreds of backpacks have already been provided for, but we want to make sure we're getting all 20 to 22 schools. There's four different counties. There are 1,500 plus backpacks. Hey, God served us. Let's make sure we serve other people. And just so you understand, the vast majority of this is going to very underserved areas. And again, it goes back to, listen, God served us in the gospel and we want to serve other people. So make sure whatever it is you can do, you get on there and you participate in some way. All right. Second thing is, is here locally, we are kind of cracking the door back open when it comes to our regathering and what that entails our Thursday night, uh, Thursday night service uh, that has social distancing and has temperature checks and all of that stuff only at the broadcast campus at the Arden campus. But we'd love for you to participate. It'll be great for your soul uh, just to be around some other folks as well. and uh, But when it caps out, it caps out. And so if you want to be a part of that this Thursday, uh, August the 13th, would love for you to be a part of that. Just go to builtmorechurch.com slash RSVP, click how many people are coming, and we'll make sure you have a seat ready for you. All right, go ahead and take your Bibles. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. As we're going there, uh, this past, about a week ago, I got the privilege of performing a uh, performing a wedding, all right? And that wedding was great. It was beautiful, had great mountain views. And I do a pretty traditional wedding, all right? I do one, especially my vows are real traditional. And there's a part of it that's like for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And the rest of it is kind of commentary just to let them know, listen, these actually could happen in life. The, we hope for the better, but you probably are gonna get some worse, all right? We enjoy the richer, but there's probably gonna be some poor. The problem with that is even though we go into that, we tend to think, you know what, uh, it is going to be primarily better and maybe a little bit of worse. And we don't have to be extraordinarily rich, but we don't think we're going to like uh, both of us lose our jobs, right? We think uh, we might have a, a little bit of sickness, but primarily we're going to have a life of health. And what we're going to see amazingly today toward the end of this letter is you're going to see a testimony in just a few verses of a man who said, you know what? Throughout my whole life, I've finally learned basically what he's going to call contentment. I've gotten off the roller coaster Christianity, the ups and downs, and there's a sense in which he's like, finally, I've entered into this after struggling with contentment, I finally have learned what it is. And as I did that, I thought, man, we really struggle with this. I struggle with this. We struggle with what's called contentment, just satisfaction with where we are in God's provision for our lives. 
And before we jump in, here's some areas we struggle with when it comes to contentment and satisfied with God's provision for my life. We struggle sometimes with what I do, what I do. You know, I don't like what I do. When I get a better job, then I'm going to be happy. Then I'll be content, which by the way, you do know that is the proverbial carrot on a stick, right? Because as soon as you're like, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, the carrot then moves. But that's typically the way we are. You know what? I'm in, I'm in high school. I just, if I can just get out of high school and go to college, and then, then I'll be happy. And then in college, you're like, man, if I can just finish my major, and then I can get a job. And then you get a job, and it's like, man, this job isn't all this cracked up to be. If I can just get like a real job with some meaning. And then after a while, it's like, well, I got to put some, man, I got I to buy a house. I got to do something. So I only need a real job with some real money. And then we just go on and on and on. Again, ambition is not wrong necessarily. There's definitely godly ambition. But what, what we're going to see the testimony today is, is he is hungry for more, but he's happy with less. So one of them is what I do. The second one is what I have. What I have. What I have is, you know what, if I can just have a little bit more, just a little bit more. Well, how much do you need? Just a little bit more. If I can have a little bit more savings, a little bit more square footage, a little bit newer finishes, a little bit of a better car. Again, there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with having those, but as they say, as long as those things don't have you. And then thirdly, even probably the most deadly is uh, we get discontent with who I'm with or who I'm not with. It goes something like this, man, when I, get, when I get a spouse, then I can be happy. Then I'll be content. When Mr. Perfect comes into my life, that is what life is about. The problem with that is oftentimes you've got people on the other end saying, you know what, I wish my I, I wish I wasn't married anymore. I wish my wife was a little bit more like this. Or if my husband could just change these things about him, then we could finally settle in and be happy. That is called discontentment. And what we're going to try to get for today is that beautiful fresh air on the top of Mount Contentment. If you live in Western North Carolina, you've got some great mountains. You've got Mount Mitchell, you've got Mount Pisgah. And there's no mountain like Mount Contentment. When you breathe the clean, sparkling, fresh air of, you know what, I am satisfied. I don't need anything else to be content. That's where we're going. But I'm telling you, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. So let's look at the text today. Here's uh, four verses, all right, four or five verses. Here's what he says. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Just so you understand, a lot of Philippians is basically a thank you note from the Apostle Paul who founded the church and then left it in good hands and then has been going around. And now what has happened is they've sent him a gift. In that day and time, it would have been things like clothes and food and water. There's a guy named Epaphroditus. He's the one that has delivered it. Paul's like probably in Rome. He's in prison. He's probably in prison in Rome. And so 800 miles away, Epaphroditus comes, gives him this, and he's so fired up about what they've done. It's like, this is great. This is awesome. Verse 11. He said, not that I am speaking of being in need, and here are a couple of key words, for I have learned. The word learned there is in the tense and in the Greek, it's the idea of, you know what, this took me a long time to get to this new chapter in my life. It hadn't always been that way. We'll kind of go back to that. It's something that he didn't always have in his life, but he's like, I finally learned it, that in whatever situation I am to be content. There's our word. Next verse. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. 
And so he's going to do a comparison contrast. He's like, I know what life is, you know, in the pits, and I know what life is like on the mountaintop. He said, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Two more verses. And this is a verse that it doesn't mean that you can go out there and uh, ace a test that you hadn't studied for. This is not about winning a football game. That's not what this verse is about. This is a verse that, it's a great verse. Probably the second verse that I ever memorized as a brand new Christian, all right? I remember looking at it before I go to an athletic event. It's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like, so I can go out there and play well or perform well. And that's not what the verse is meaning. He said, I can, it's actually better. He said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, he's actually saying, whether it's good or bad, I can be satisfied with what God has done in my life. And then verse 14 that we'll come to in a little bit, yet it was kind of you, you as the Philippian church, to share in my trouble. So here's uh, kind of what we're looking at. Uh, he said, I've learned this secret. In other words, it's elusive. It's the idea that, you know what, I, I know what it's like to abound and have plenty, and I know what it's like to be at the top. Now, we need to understand the Apostle Paul didn't know what that was like. He understood what it was like to be the up-and-coming guy. He understood what it was like to be the popular preacher. He understood what it was like to be at the top of the religious circles and be on the cover of the magazines and be invited to preach at the conferences and have tons of Instagram followers. He understood that. But he also saying, I understand what it's like to be at the bottom. And he had been, he'd been arrested, he had bad health, he's been broke, he's been isolated. And he said, what I've learned is that the formula, when I get this, I'll be happy, is a myth. And loved one, if you can please, if we can please just get this one truth, it is a myth to think if I can just get, and you fill in the blank, you fill in the blank, better school, better job, better house, better spouse, better whatever. If I can just get that, then I'm finally going to be content, or we would say finally going to be happy. That is a myth. It's a myth. You're like, why is it a myth? We're going to see that in just a, uh, just a few minutes. So let me give you a definition to start off with. And I, I saw a bunch of different definitions this week, and I kind of tried to squeeze them all together. So here's one that uh, I think we've even used a little bit of this in the past, but contentment is satisfaction. That's probably the closest word, satisfaction. It's, it's not saying that ambition is wrong. There is such a thing as godly ambition. Godly ambition is good. It's godly. It's, this is not apathy, but contentment is satisfaction. It's that sense of, uh, it's like when you just finish a meal and you're full and you're like, do you want any more? You want any more cake? You want any more pie? I don't, I don't need anything at all. Why? Because you are satisfied. It is satisfaction with God's provision for me. Now, it's interesting, the word here, contentment, sometimes it is used in other places in the New Testament, but the particular word that Paul uses here, this is the only time it's used. And it was actually a word he borrowed from the Stoics of his day and then changed it around with a gospel orientation. The Stoics would use it by saying, you know what, I have all, it's kind of like Oprah theology, I've got everything that I need within me, all right? just within me, just self-improvement and within me, I've got it. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. That's not what it is. It's not about self-sufficiency. He's saying it's about God's sufficiency. And the idea was, you know what? I have finally found, I, I know what my center is. I know where my security is. I know where my identity is. And that is where everything flows from. So whether I'm up here or whether I'm down here, I still have that constant center and security. Tim Keller says, uh, he said, this is a picture of a weaned child. A weaned child. A weaned child is, when they're not weaned, what do they do? They just cry for mama. I need something from you. 
And if mama doesn't provide, then they just scream louder. But a wean child, a wean child just wants to be in the, being with the mom is plenty. Trust mom, mom's gonna take care of the groceries. Mom's gonna take care of that. And here's where our struggle is. And this, I'll be honest with you as well. This is not something I've ever met somebody that's like, I've conquered this once and for all. This is a struggle and it's not natural. You know what natural is? Natural is uh, restlessness. It is covetousness. It is discontentment, as a matter of fact. I don't know if you know this, the first sin in the Bible, the first sin in the Bible is mankind being discontent with God's provision in his life. Let me just go back to Genesis chapter two, Genesis chapter three. Genesis two is all about contentment. I mean, Adam and Eve are content. They are content. They're content with their relationship with God. They're content with their relationship with each other. They're content in their relationship to work, all of that. And the reason is, here's what God had done. God had said, you got all of these yes trees. You got all these yes trees. Do it. Awesome. You got one no tree. And what did they do? What did they focus on? They didn't focus on the, we don't know how many, but the thousands of yes trees. They want the one no tree. Now, let's be honest. Are we any different? I mean, are we any different at all? Again, how many times do we say this? You know what? If I was only out of school or if I was only married and then you get married and things aren't going well and it's like, if I wasn't married and if I am married, if we can just have a baby and if we have a baby, we're gonna need more square footage and if we just have all that, that's all that stuff is fine to want but if we put them up here, it is just chasing and chasing and what happens is when you finally get the goal, you know why it's a myth? The thinking, if I just had this, then I would be happy. What happens is you work and you work and you work and you finally reach that goal. And as soon as you reach that goal, what happens? They move the goalpost. They just move the goalpost. It's like, okay, I got to go to this next goal. And so when you look at our life, I looked up a stat, $250 billion is spent in advertising in the U.S. alone. And you know what the sole goal of advertising is, is to help you and I say, I need that. I need that. When I get that, I will be content. I will be happy. And it goes from beer to bagels, from toys to trucks, you name it. And it's a myth to say, you know what? I got to have that to be happy. Just to show you about how we're always wanting the next thing. And again, that's not bad as long as we understand a lot of that stuff is going to end up in a garage sale someday. And it's like just drinking salt water. It's not, it's not, a, it's not going to help. But I begin to kind of reflect, and this will date me to some degree, but when I was a kid, uh, video games, as we know them today, were like just barely starting. The game, the game that we had as a kid was actually called Atari. You can Google it and look it up. But basically Atari was a black box with a black handle and one button. One, I think it was or, one orange button. And it had the most uh, satanic sound when you would do it. It was like, beep. I mean, if you did that for hours on end, you would go crazy. And that's what they had. Then they eventually got into the arcades and they brought in some different games. I remember we didn't even have, we didn't even have remote control, so to speak. When, when cable came out, we were so fired up because they had this little brown box on top and you had to go over by the TV and slide this thing down there, right? Cartoons, uh, cartoons were on after school, they were on uh, in the morning early and they were definitely on on Saturday morning. So I know when my boys were growing up, I was like, listen, we didn't have Barney, you know, at 7.30 at night. Okay? There was no such thing as the Cartoon Network. There was no SpongeBob anytime you wanted to put him on, none of that stuff at all. 
And yet if we're honest, whether we look at kids stuff or whether we look at adult stuff, we are more entertained. We can go places we've never been, but man, we are the most bored and frustrated generation that there's ever been. We're the most technologically advanced and yet we're the most bored and frustrated out of our minds that we've ever seen. Because again, the second you get to the goal, what happens? The goalpost moves. And the problem with that is what we're doing is we're just going round and round when we think if I can just get that one thing, then I'll be content. That is the cul-de-sac of stupidity is what that is. We just go round and round that cul-de-sac thinking, you know what? It's gonna be different this time with this goal and this toy and this marriage. And if it just goes, and it's the cul-de-sac of stupidity. It's like thinking that it's gonna be different the third time around the circle and it's not gonna be any different. And uh, what Paul's saying finally is, is I've learned it. The, the harsh part about it is when we're on that, when we're on that merry-go-round, when we're going around that cul-de-sac thinking the next time's gonna be different, it actually robs us of our ability to enjoy the stuff God gives us now. For always thinking if my spouse would just do that, if I could, my boss would just do this, if my job was just a little better, whatever that is, if I just had a little bit more, what it is, is you're always thinking, I'll be happy in the future, and it robs you of the ability to enjoy the basic things that God has given you right now. And uh, what Paul's saying, I've had both. I've had abundance, and I don't know what he's referring to there. You know, we've got a ton of stuff on Paul's life. Maybe, you know, if you remember, the whole church at Philippi was founded with one of the people was a CEO lady named Lydia who had a lot of money. More than likely the church met in her house. More than likely she had a big, big house, all right? So maybe he's thinking back to the time that he and his traveling companions, maybe they stayed there at Lydia's house and it was awesome, man. They had feather pillows. They had great quilt comforters, all right? She had a chef. They, she, you know, the chef cooked them filet. They got to sleep late. They got to swim in the pool. They're like, that was awesome. That was abundance. And then maybe two days later, he's preaching the gospel and gets thrown in prison. And now he's sleeping on a prison floor and people are harassing him. And he's like, that's not abundance. That's actually the worst. I've been brought low. And so here's what I finally I thought about. I thought about, man, this is a, contentment is not a destination as much as it is a mode of transportation. Here's what I mean by that. We think of contentment, I do, is like, you know what, when I have this, I'll get there. So it's a destination. And what Paul's saying, it's really not a destination as much as it is the mode of transportation. It's not like a hotel that I arrive at. It's like the car that I ride in. And, and I, I could give you a hundred different things, but uh, it's not just you. It's not just the banker. It's not just the whatever. It's, uh, preachers have this amazing. That's why preachers, by the way, only stay 18 months on average at their, at their church. Why? Because they're thinking, you know what? If I can just go to this next church where the grass is greener, then I'll be appreciated. Then I'll be fulfilled. Then it'll be awesome. So uh, true confessions, I've been here at Billmore Church, 12 years now. And it's been, it's, been, it's been the most fun 12 years of ministry with our church. And we've seen God do some things I honestly didn't think could happen moving here from Houston years and years ago. But I do, I do remember a bunch of different milestones, but I distinctly remember as I don't even know how old I was when I came here. But at that age, I remember the first time on a normal Sunday, not Easter, not high attendance day, but I remember the first time it's like, I remember walking out of my office after finding out that that Sunday, man, we had 4,000 people in attendance and we had been talking about it and working toward it. I was like, whoo, I went home and I was like, I'm so fired up telling Lori about it. I remember sitting there going, it, it just cannot get any better than this. This is the ultimate in satisfaction for the preacher. But it wasn't two weeks later 
till that had ebbed away. And it's like the next goal. And then, you know, a little bit later, we hit another goal. It's like 5,000 or 6,000. It's like, but after a while, what you finally learn is the contentment is not in the destination. Now, listen, we're all about goal setting. We're all about reaching more. We're all about advancing the kingdom. So listen, it's not about backing off at all. It's the idea that understanding though, the contentment and the joy and the happiness is not just in clicking off another goal that you attain, all right? It's being content that you look what God is doing right now. And what I finally learned is if I didn't learn that lesson, then I would never be able to enjoy both what God was doing as well as the people that I was doing it with. And so uh, what he is saying is uh, I've learned a lesson. So let me just go to the how-to. How's it? Here's some things I'm learning and have learned, but how am I going to actually get that? Because you're like, man, the air up there on Mount Contentment sure does smell good. I wish I could get a little whiff of that. That would be awesome. Um, well, we got to take some action for that. So how am I going to do that? Let's just talk about a couple. Number one, I think, is, is repent of covetousness. Uh, repentance, if that's unfamiliar language to you, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It's a change of mind. It's a change of thinking. It's a change of, you know what? I don't want to think like I've been thinking anymore. And that thinking is what we've been talking about. If I can just get X, if I can just get this, then everything would be great and then I would be happy. Again, covetousness is not ambition. You can have that godly ambition. Covetousness is a mindset that craves more and more and more and more. And let's be blunt. If you're a Christ follower, uh, your struggle with covetousness is typically not, you know what? I don't want God. I want this. That's not it. It's usually we want God and this. We want God and the perfect spouse, God and the lucrative career, God and the candy and Cadillacs, God and whatever, and you fill in the blank. And what we're basically saying is, God, you're fine where you fit in, but my life had better be about more than just you. It better be about these three things as well. And that's why it actually repulses God. And do you understand that do not covet is the only commandment of the 10 commandments that actually gets repeated. It's just a little Bible trivia. The only commandment that gets repeated is do not covet. And it's like, what does he say? Do not covet. And then he starts to give commentary on what and how we are not supposed to covet. Why? Because it's very, very difficult to recognize it in your own life. Do not covet. And so um, it's, it's also the one that God used to arrest the attention of the person who wrote this letter to say, you know, I was doing great on all the other stuff, but I was coveting. So here's what that means. It means an acknowledgement that I've been living for things and, and stuff other than for you. Just tell God that. You're like, man, I don't want to tell God that. I don't, he's going to get mad. Bro, God already knows. God already knows. Just tell him. God, I tell you what, I've been living for stuff. I've been living for all this stuff more than for you. It hadn't been pleasing to you, God. It hasn't been satisfying to my soul at all. By the way, a, a little litmus test that you might give yourself is when you dream about the days ahead and how awesome they could be, do you think about, do you think about stuff to acquire or people to impact? That's a pretty good one. When you think, man, if I could just get that deck out back, or do you think about, man, I could do some things and impact some people for the gospel? That's kind of a litmus test. Just be honest. And so part of it is just, you know what, I'm going to repent of covetousness. God, I'm changing my mind. I'm getting off the cul-de-sac of stupidity. I'm getting off the merry-go-round of ridiculousness, thinking that the next time around is going to be different. I just kind of want to repent of that, God. And second thing, let's just put some practice into it. Tangibly, tangibly help somebody. Verse 14. We're not going to spend the whole time going for the rest of it. From 14 for the next few verses is his thank you saying, thank you, Philippians. You sacrificially 
You sacrificially helped me. You shared in my trouble. So let me give you some super easy ones that you can't, even if you're cynical out there, you can't think, oh, he's trying to get something from me. Let me give you two things. I mentioned earlier, Biltmore Church loves schools. These are areas typically that are underserved. I would just challenge you, as a family, find some way you can plug in. I said it last week, God has blessed some of us and we can do a lot. God has blessed all of us in some way, we can all do something. Don't think because you can't help everyone, you can't help someone. You can, you can make a difference. I challenge you, if you're a parent, man, get a little scooter around the table and say, listen, here's what we're doing. We're providing five backpacks or school supplies or dropping them off. And and we might have to do without this, or we're not gonna go out to dinner tonight because we're putting that money toward some school supplies for some kids in this difficult area. And that, you talk about a lesson, that's discipleship right there. So tangibly help somebody, provide for somebody else. Like, ah, we already did that, but I'm looking for something. Here's another one, sponsor a compassion child. All right, we beat this drum all the time. You, spot, you rescue a child from poverty in Jesus' name. We talk about it all the time. Why? Because it, man, it just smells like Jesus, doesn't it? It smells like Jesus. How do I go help a child? In our case, we sponsor thousands of kids in Ecuador. All right, love for you to jump on there. You can go on to our website, and I think it's just slash sponsor, and you can see, okay, I wanna sponsor a compassion child. But if I'm just really blunt, ask yourself this question. Do I do that? If I can just be so blunt as to say, some of you as Christians, you don't have any joy because you don't impact anybody else. Now, we don't have time to chase this whole rabbit the way it should. I almost wanted to save this picture for another time, but think about this. Um, If you have kids and they're old enough to go to the grocery store for you, maybe they're gonna ride their bike, maybe they're gonna drive the car, 16, whatever. But let's say you need some, uh, let's say, Let's say there's some frost coming or some, something's coming and all of a sudden you're like, you know what? We gotta go get bread and milk. We gotta go get bread and milk. And so you're like, hey, I want you to go down to Publix. I want you to get, I want you to get some bread and milk. Here's 20 bucks. Go get some bread and milk. And hey, because I love you so much, uh, 20 bucks is more than enough. Because I love you so much, man, get yourself a Snickers while you're there. Get two Snickers. That's fine. Just because I love you. They go. They come back. He walks in the door and there's no bread and there's no milk and there's this like bag full of Snickers. You're like, bro, what, 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 what happened? What happened? He's like, well, I didn't have enough money. You're like, what? You had plenty of money. I mean, I know what bread costs. I know what milk costs. But out of the abundance of your heart, you're like, well, here's another 20. Make sure you go back and get bread and milk. And so he goes back. A few minutes later, he is back. You've already given him at this point $40. He comes back and he's got this bag full of like popcorn and movies and all this stuff. And you're like, where's the bread and milk? You're like, I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough question. What would you eventually do? In my case, I have two sons. What I would eventually do is say, you know what? I'm not giving you anything else. Here, son number two, you go down. Here's 20 bucks. You go down and you get the bread and milk. So just the question, the question is, if you were God, would you entrust you with more than what he's already given you? If you were God, and you look down at your stewardship and your generosity and the way that you understand the way God's been generous to you in the gospel, the way that he sacrificially gave for you, if you were God and he looked down at you as a son or daughter and your generosity toward people that don't have as much, would you give you more? Tangibly help someone. Great picture there. Number three, and this is the one you gotta think of, is just is, is thank God and some other people. This whole Philippian letter, and you'll start to see it toward the end, 
he starts naming stuff that he's just grateful for. And he's, this is the church he loved so much. They were mature. And it's a thank you note. It's a spirit-led, inspired, used by God, written by the Spirit of God, thank you note. And what you'll find out is thanksgiving slash worship is kryptonite to discontentment. Thanksgiving is kryptonite. You know, when I say kryptonite, I'm talking about Superman movies, the alien material that would strip Superman of his powers. It was kryptonite. What strips covetousness, what strips discontentment, what strips restlessness of its power is gratitude, thanksgiving, worship. God, you've given me awesome. You've given me a I got this apartment. It's not as big as I want. And I wouldn't include that in your Thanksgiving, but God, it's awesome. Thank you for providing this. Thanks for providing this car, this dishwasher, this food, this spouse, this church, this whatever. Just thank him for that. And let it flow over to thanking the people that he's used in your life. For example, if you have a connect group teacher, if you're at Biltmore Church, we got connect groups. That's like the main engine uh, behind the scene are connect groups. I don't know how many connect groups we have, hundreds and hundreds of connect groups. The idea is those leaders have spent hours and hours and hours, week after week, month after month after month. How awesome would it be if just your connect group teacher got a text or a call or, a, or even a old fashioned snail mail letter. Just thank you for your diligence and preparation. I've learned so much. God has taught me so much. He has strengthened my marriage. He's helped me be a better parent. He's helped me be a better, but whatever. And just say, thank you for that. That would begin to strip away. If I can just have more, if I can just have more, it's a struggle. It's a struggle, but it's a struggle that we can actually have some victory in. And the way we want to facilitate that is instead of me praying and then the host coming on, we're actually going to end with a song that we've done a bunch of times. And it's super, super simple. It's just called the goodness of God. And if you're sitting there either with your connect group or you're sitting there in your living room by yourself or with your family, I know some of you can't sing real good. You're like me, you got a terrible voice, but God's not really grading you on your pitch today. He's not grading you on how well you hit the notes, but he is trying to think, man, do I have some worshipers down there? And so uh, whether you just stand up and sing or whether you stand up and raise your hands or hold hands as a family or whatever you do, uh, as we sing this song, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna go right into goodness of God and let that be the overflow. When you say, all of my life, you've been faithful. All of my life, you've been so, so good. Let God hear that today. Let some people who have invested in your life, let them hear that today. So I'm gonna pray, we're gonna worship a little bit more. Father, thanks for the goodness of God in our life. Uh, we, we repent of our whining and our complaining and our discontentment and our restlessness. And God, we want to change our mind about that. Thank you for the gifts, God. Thank you for the gifts. But help us to realize the gifts don't terminate on themselves. They need to flow and rise up to praise to the God who gave it to us. And we pray that even in the next couple of minutes as this song is sung in thousands of locations all around the world, that you would be pleased. And we love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.